0: bow your heads with me as we go to lord in prayer to ask god's blessing on the public preaching of his word let's pray father we have already confessed that we are weak and wayward our hearts have sometimes filled with sins that no one else has seen so we pray forgive us Help us to not be distracted by other concerns or priorities in our lives, but give us grace now to concentrate together, to meditate on your holy word. Help us to feed in the green pastures of Scripture. Bring to mind thoughts and applications that we have not yet considered. Unite our hearts together to cherish your truth, to obey it, to fear you, to love you, to appreciate what you have said to us, and to recognize the glory that you have revealed to us in Christ. For his sake we pray, amen. I'm sure you are aware... There used to be a cellular service ad where the actor was speaking on the phone and kept showing up in different places at different times and saying into the phone, Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Well, John, the writer of this gospel, has been doing something similar with his presentation of Jesus, showing him doing seven different signs and teaching Seven different discourses. And each of them, it's as if John is saying, do you see him now? Do you see him now? But as we'll see this morning from John 12, 12 through 36, if you're going to turn there in your Bibles, John 12, 12 to 36, the people around Jesus do not see. Many of them think they see, but they do not. They see something about Jesus, but what they do not see is his glory and what makes him glorious. Jesus, in fact, radiates a different kind of glory, a glory that is lost on those around him. That's the point of the whole passage. Jesus radiates a different kind of glory that is lost on those around him. We're going to organize our time together in God's Word this morning by meditating on six facets of Jesus' glory in John 12, 12 to 36. So follow along with me as I read the text. John 12, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 36. The next day... So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. For a little while longer, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the light, in the darkness, does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So six aspects of Jesus' glory in John 12, 12 to 36. First, it's an unrecognized glory. It's an unrecognized glory in verses 12 to 19. The crowd doesn't realize what Scripture says of Jesus. It's now day, the day after Jesus' supper with Lazarus and Bethany. Word has gotten out that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem for Passover, or is arriving, and the crowd goes wild for Him. They see Him coming, and they lay down palm branches for Him to walk over. In Jewish culture, palm branches were usually for the Feast of Tabernacles, or tents, which was celebrating their living in tents with God in the Exodus. But here, it's not tabernacles, it's, Temp- it's Passover. And they're greeting Jesus as the King of Israel. In Roman culture, palm branches were often used to greet military generals back from victorious war campaigns. And we learn in verses 17 and 18 that these crowds are celebrating Jesus' arrival because they heard that he had just raised Lazarus. So they'd all been gossiping about whether or not he'd show up and now here he is and it's electric. They all greet Jesus, chanting the words of Psalm one eighteen twenty six: Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was the last of the Hillel Psalms, which are Psalms of praise. Psalms 113 to 118, which the people would sing with and to each other on their way into Jerusalem at Passover time. And when they got in, they would all greet each other as other people were, flo- were flocking in, in the words from these psalms. So just greeting Jesus with Psalm 118 wasn't particularly unique to Jesus. They all greeted each other like that. But what was unique was adding even the King of Israel. They didn't say that to just any Jew. Nobody but Jesus got that treatment. And again, it was because they had heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus. Yet this isn't the first time that we've seen Jesus greeted as a king. Nathaniel, you'll remember, called Jesus king of Israel in John 1. And the crowds tried to kidnap Jesus to make him king after he made it rain bread from heaven in John 6. So they're going crazy for Jesus here at Passover. But as we said last week, this is not the stuff of Christian discipleship. These are flighty Jesus fans. These are groupies. These people are not Christians, at least not yet. They're treating Jesus like a celebrity healer, a populist leader who puts the elites in their place in all their debates. And while they intend to honor Jesus from Psalm 118, even what they themselves are saying is lost on them. They speak better than they know when they're quoting Psalm 118. Because listen to excerpts from Psalm 118. It's the same psalm that they're quoting. Hosanna, blessed be the one that comes in the name of the Lord. In that very same psalm, excerpts from the previous paragraph from what they quoted. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So these crowds are blessing Jesus from that psalm without realizing that Jesus is arriving at this Passover to fulfill Psalm 118 in his own death and resurrection. They don't recognize Jesus' glory, even in the moment in which they think they are giving him glory. Because they do not realize what Psalm 118 actually says about Jesus. They speak better than they know. And therefore, Jesus' glory goes unrecognized for them. And yet, as unaware as they are, Jesus accepts their praises as king. But he does it by intentionally fulfilling a different messianic prophecy from Zechariah 9. He finds a donkey and rides it into Jerusalem to the praises of the crowd. Now, if you were coming into Jerusalem in the first century Roman Empire and you were being acclaimed as king, what kind of animal would you find? I think you would find something a little more ceremonious than a donkey <laughs> i'm trying to envision some of you men riding on a donkey i might pay to see that no i, th- I think you would find a warhorse right you would find a sleek black young strong Big war horse. That's what you would want to ride on. Because that would say something about you that you would want other people to see and say. Because that was a symbol of royal power, of Roman power, of military power. But not for Jesus. Because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. The meaning of the donkey is that Jesus intends his reign to be one of peace not one of war. And he has a different kind of strength. He wants his reign to be one of humility, not of pride. Because Jesus' glory is a humble glory. For a biblically aware Jew who would have known Zechariah 9 and who would have seen Jesus coming in, wanting him to reign, as someone who could make it rain bread from heaven and displace Roman military power, for them to see Jesus riding on a donkey, voluntarily finding a donkey to ride on, would have communicated acceptance of their praise for him as king without him saying a word, but it would have also communicated a gentle rebuke of the kind of king he thought they wanted him to be. But it's not just the crowds who are clueless here. It's not just the crowds that see Jesus' glory go lost on them. Jesus' own disciples don't realize what's happening to Jesus. In verse 16, they don't get it, and they won't get it until after the resurrection. What they don't get is the significance of the things that had been written about Him and done to Him. They don't realize yet how Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9 had testified to Jesus. Those things, John said, had been written about Him, about Jesus, centuries before Jesus ever even took on human flesh. What made the difference for the disciples is the resurrection and ascension when Jesus was glorified after his death. Then and only then would it make sense that these things had been written of him and done to him. Only after the resurrection and ascension does the light bulb turn on for the disciples and like, oh... So when he came into Jerusalem and got on a donkey and when they were c- praising him in terms of Psalm went, oh, okay, okay, okay. So nobody really knew what was going on then, but Jesus, okay, now I get it. And all those other things in Psalm 118 actually applied to Jesus in ways that nobody could have anticipated. Oh, okay. What this means is that it is not simply Jesus' earthly life and teaching that makes sense of Old Testament prophecy about him. It is Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, glorification that makes sense of Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. And I hope you see the significance of this. Don't let this be lost on you. Even if you were an apostle, you could not read and understand the Old Testament in its fullest sense until you read it in light of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension to God's right hand. Only when you look back over your shoulder at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection do you understand all that God was announcing to you in the law and the writings and the prophets. And for that reason, Jesus' glory here is lost even on His own closest disciples. Even they will not recognize His glory until after He is glorified through being lifted up on the cross, buried in death, raised to new life, and then being lifted all the way up to glory. So the upshot is that when you read your Old Testament, you need to be asking, what does this paragraph or chapter have to do with Jesus' person, death, resurrection, an ascension how does my text testify to jesus death how does my text help me get to know jesus better what is this event person office institution what is this saying how is this helping me anticipate jesus how does let there be light Testify to Jesus? How does the promise of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing in Genesis 12 testify to Jesus? How does Jacob's ladder testify to Jesus? How does Israel as God's firstborn son testify to Jesus? How does the temple itself testify to Jesus? How do prophet, priest, and king testify to Jesus? How do all the sacrifices testify to Jesus? How does Exodus and exile and return from exile testify to Jesus. How does conquest, judgment, and salvation from enemies testify to Jesus? That's how you read your Old Testament. That's how Jesus read his. That's how John read his. That's how John is saying the apostles failed to read their Old Testament at this Passover. That's why they didn't know what was going on. But the crowd also doesn't realize what Lazarus says about Jesus. They know what God did for Lazarus, but they don't realize what Lazarus says about Jesus. The crowd's motive for greeting and praising Jesus as king in verses 17 and 18 is that one crowd testified to the other. The crowd that saw Jesus raise Lazarus has now testified and been testifying to the crowd that is now gathered here. And the former testimony is the reason that this present crowd is gathered in other words, they praised Jesus because they heard about the other crowd seeing the sign of Lazarus, not because they understood Psalm 118 in connection with Jesus, not even because they understood what Lazarus says about Jesus. They have no idea that Lazarus' death and resurrection actually prefigured Jesus' death and resurrection. They don't know. They had no idea what would transpire in Jerusalem by the end of that week. But it sure looks like they love and worship Jesus, doesn't it? They have lots of nice things to say about Jesus. They welcome Him. Now here again, look at how nice you can be to Jesus and not be saved and not understand the gospel. The Pharisees themselves don't realize what God is doing in Jesus in verse 19. Whatever is the case with the crowds, Jesus' notoriety and popularity with them in verses 12 to 18 is the reason that the Pharisees get so concerned in verse 19. They're really starting to get jittery here, and yet they're helpless to do anything about it. Look there in verse 19. Look, you're not accomplishing anything. You're doing no good. This whole decree that we made about, hey, if you know where Jesus is, let us know so we can arrest him. That is doing zero good. (laughs) And again, you get the feeling that John is just kind of snickering at them behind the page when they admit, you're not accomplishing anything. The world is going away after him. They've already put up wanted posters all over Jerusalem. They've already put out an APB for information on Jesus' whereabouts so that the people would turn to Jesus when they found him or turn Jesus in when they found him. But now that everyone knows where Jesus is. Instead of turning him into the Pharisees so they can arrest him, the crowd wants to turn him into a king. The Pharisees' worst nightmare is coming true because the Romans might hear that kind of talk and see this kind of a parade as rebellion and then come and take away the Jewish place and nation. That's what the Jews were fearing Chapter 11. So the Pharisees are at their wits' end. What they don't realize is that even they are speaking better than they know. The world, the whole world, really is going after Jesus, and they arrive in the very next verse. For now, it's enough for us to recognize that unrecognized glory is glory still. Everyone was seeing Jesus with their own two eyes and no one, including Jesus' best 12 guys, recognized what they were seeing in him. His glory is right there. It is hidden in plain view. My wife accuses me of something every so often. When something goes missing, I tend... Sinfully to blame everybody else. What'd you do with that? What'd you do with that? Where'd you put these? Where'd you put that? You guys don't put anything back where it belongs. I feel so justified in that frustration. And then, of course, my wife looks for it, and immediately it's right here. And usually, after she says "right here," she says to me, "You're not a very good looker." humiliating to me. You're not a very good looker. It was right there. And and immediately, I'm like, oh, sorry. He's proven me wrong. That's what's happening right here. You're not a very good looker because you don't see Jesus' glory. He's right there, man. He's right there. You're looking at him, and you don't see it. That's how we read Scripture sometimes. He's right there. How could we miss Him? We have Jesus right here in front of us, right now in Scripture. We see Him every single week here on Sundays. I trust you see Him in Scripture every day yourself. And have you let His glory go unrecognized in your reading, in your heart, in your home, in your worship, in your obedience, in your conversation with each other after the service and in the car. Friends, let's be more intentional about recognizing Jesus' glory together in our conversations with each other on Sundays and during the week. Pay attention to the lines that you are singing in the songs and mention them to each other. Wasn't this a great line? Didn't this line honor Christ so well? I have never realized what I was singing in that song until this morning. I want you to have more of those kind of conversations with each other. Note something in the prayers that are prayed. Note something in the scripture readings, in the sermon that draws you to praise Jesus and mention it to somebody else for edifying conversation. You are at church literally for Christ's sake. Talk of him to each other. Recognize his glory with each other. Don't let it go lost on you. So first, it's an unrecognized glory. Second, it's a global glory. Jesus' glory is a global glory in verses 20 to 23. The world does come to see Jesus right here. John wants you to notice the timing. The Pharisees are up in arms that the whole world is going after Jesus. And what happens in the very next verse? Some Greeks (laughs) go after Jesus. They come seeking him. Some Greeks, these are not Jewish people. These are from another part of the world, from another nation. Already, Jesus' glory is glowing global, and there's nothing anybody can do to stop it, no matter how much they disapprove of Jesus. These Greeks Greeks probably approach Philip because Philip's got a Greek name and likely from their perspective speaks greek as well as they do but oddly when philip and andrew approach jesus about seeing these greeks john doesn't relate the meeting between jesus and the greek visitors instead john tells us what jesus thought it meant that some greeks wanted to seek him and what it meant to jesus was pivotal look there in verse 23 jesus answered them philip and andrew the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified that's what it means to jesus It means the arrival of Jesus' hour. That hour has been approaching all the way through John. We have seen that phrase. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Nobody can touch him. Nobody can arrest him. Nobody can trap him because his hour has not yet come. Now finally, these Greeks get there for Passover, and Jesus himself says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Their arrival is Jesus' cue. That it's time for him to die and rise again, so that all kinds of people from all kinds of places and cultures might find forgiveness and eternal life, specifically in his death and resurrection. Jesus' glory will be seen and praised and trusted and appreciated and valued by all kinds of people everywhere. What makes the arrival of these Greeks all the more meaningful is that Jesus has already intentionally fulfilled Zechariah 9.9 by riding the foal of a donkey as a king of Israel. But in the very next verse, Zechariah 9.10, we see that this global rule of Israel's king is from sea to sea. His rule is not just for Jerusalem or in Jerusalem or localized there. Even in Zechariah 9.10... He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. He has just fulfilled that, riding on the foal of a donkey to communicate that kind of kingship, and now, suddenly, immediately, some Greeks come seeking him. Not a coincidence. Providence. And of course, this global glory has to mean something for churches like ours. For starters, it means we find our identity together in Christ, not in ethnicity, not in nationality, not in age or social status, not in economic class or political party affiliation. The global glory of Christ means that our relationships with each other cross all of these cultural divides that might and probably would otherwise divide us. So we are patient with our differences in the church because Jesus is the one who has knit our hearts together in His truth and love by His blood. But Jesus' global glory also means that we care about international missions. We work and give and pray and care To see godly pastors raised up and healthy churches planted in other parts of the world, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is God's aim. God's aim is not simply that you have somewhere to go on Sunday where you're comfortable. God's aim is that we would be His instruments as a church for the local and global spread of His glory. That is why we pray for churches and pastors in other parts of the world. That is why... You send me to other countries every so often to contribute to the training of international pastors and the encouragement of their churches. This is why we want to aim at growing our missions budget budget incrementally as a percentage of our overall budget. And it's why we want to be a church that represents our, in our membership and in our churches church friendships the ethnic diversity of God's international people who believe and live in line with God's Word. It's a global glory. Third, it's an eternal glory. Jesus' glory is an eternal glory. Verses 24 to 26. A few Greeks have just requested an audience with Jesus. Jesus answers, again, not the Greeks, but Philip and Andrew. The hour of His glory is arriving, but that glory will only come in and through His death. So spiritual productivity is organic. Even for Jesus, unless He dies, He remains alone. But if he dies, like a grain of planted wheat, he will bear much fruit. Seed is useless unless it's planted. But when it's planted, it has to explode itself, as it were, in order to germinate and become organically mature grain or fruit. The apple seed has to give up Existing as seed in order to sprout out of itself into an apple that you actually want to eat. I don't know a lot of children who ask their parents for an apple seed. Can I have a cup of apple seeds for my snack today, mom? No, you will choke on an apple seed. But here's an apple. You can have an apple. Yes, an apple is good to eat, it's fruit. So, Jesus knows that it is not enough for him to simply teach and do miracles and live an exemplary life of self denial. Jesus knows that about himself. His life on earth was only the seed, it was pure seed, his necessary seed, but only seed. He has to actually die physically, voluntarily, obediently, because. God's purpose for Him is not just to be an example or a teacher. It's for Jesus to be a life-giving substitute in His death, a sacrifice, an atonement for our sins, in the shedding of His blood, and the offering of His own death in our place. That death, Jesus' death as God, fully God and fully man, is the only thing that can secure eternal glory for himself as Savior King or eternal life for us in union with him. He has to die for that eternal glory to be secured because it's organic. It's like a seed. Jesus has it in himself to give life to whomever he pleases, but he can only give that life to us By giving up his life for us. That death, paying the penalty for our sins with no sin of his own, is the way to resurrection from the dead that vindicates his sinlessness. It shows, hey, this man, this God-man, did not deserve to die. He was innocent. And the vindication of his innocence, the proof of his innocence, the declaration of his righteousness is God raised him from the dead. That, the resurrection, is God's saying. He really is who he claims to be. He is my son. He is sinless. He has no sin of his own for which to pay or for which to die. He did not deserve to be crucified. And it is in his vindication that we find our own. And in hiding ourselves in his death in our place for our sins, our sins are atoned for, covered, and we can be vindicated in the righteousness of Christ even though we are not righteous in our own behavior. So it is Jesus' death, suffering God's curse under God's law for God's people that satisfies God's wrath at us over our sins, releases us from that cursed death and ushers in resurrection life in Jesus' resurrection for all of us who are trusting in Him. And so the fruit Jesus bears in His death, He's buried as seed in His death, and the fruit Jesus bears in that death is eternal life blessedness and power that His sinless life and death earned for Himself and for all who trust in Him. In other words, we are that fruit. We who trust in Him, the eternal life that we experience and share together even now in an inaugurated, begun sense. That eternal life, our appreciation, our recognition of Jesus' glory, that is the fruit of Jesus' death. Jesus' death led him into eternal resurrection life, and when we follow him as his disciples, we follow him into his eternal resurrection life such that he does not remain alone in that resurrection life, but we are with him in it. And yet to follow Jesus into that resurrection life, we have to follow him first into his death. Death to ourselves and our own sinful appetites and assumptions, priorities, habits, and attitudes. That's verse 25. Only then, only then can we bear similarly good fruit for eternity in the lives of others as Jesus did for us. You have to die to yourself and to your sins. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 25 and 26. Jesus generalizes and applies this organic principle of his death leading to eternal life. It's not just true for him. It is true for you and me. For all those who would follow him, whoever loves his life loses it. You love your life as a seed. You love being that seed. You love everything that seed represents in itself. Apart from its future, you die. You lose that life. You love this life, its pleasures, its perks, its promises, its prerogatives and powers. You love all that stuff about this life, the seed life. love a life in a sinful world and how this world coddles and accommodates your sinfulness. Then you die eternally. To live like that is to plant yourself for hell. You forfeit your eternal soul to eternal damnation under the wrath of Almighty God in hell, when you love your life in this world for the sake of living out worldliness. But, the opposite is also true, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, this is the paradox of the Christian life. You will either love your life to death Eternally. Like a guy who waxes his car too much. <laughs> ah, where do these scratches come from? You're loving it to death, man. It, people live whole lives like that. Or you will die to yourself and your sin and to this world so that you awaken to eternal life and blessedness and glory in the life to come. This is why we cannot stop preaching repentance from sin as a Christian church to the church. You and I have to keep dying to the sins that we find most attractive in our flesh if we want to live eternally with Christ. That's just how it goes. There is no eternal life without death to sin and to self and so, worldliness. There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's not extra credit Christianity. This is entry level 101 discipleship to Jesus. Whoever loves his life, whoever, there are no exceptions here, whoever, Jesus included, whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world, We'll keep it to eternal life. Now, don't misunderstand. You don't hate your life in the sense of ingratitude for God's common grace to you. You don't hate your life in terms of always engaging every inkling of depression or despair or self-pity or suicidal thoughts. No. You hate it relatively. You hate it in comparison to, relative to your love for Christ and for his truth, for his cause, for the gospel's advance in the world, for investing yourself in all you have in the world to come, your stance towards your life in this present world should look like you hate it in comparison to your stance towards the things of the world to come. And what you hate about your life in this world is how your sinfulness is attracted to the world's lies and temptations. I hate that. I'm tired of that. I'm sick of that. If you love the fading pleasures and profits and perks of this world, you will suffer their fate. They are passing away and so will you. But friend, what do you love to think about? What do you love to daydream about? What do you love to learn how to do? What do you love to learn to understand? What do you spend your discretionary time on? What do you prioritize? What do you organize your time and energy around doing? What do you save time and energy for? What do you want to get better at? What do you like, who do you like being around and why? What are your hopes and goals? How do you use the things of this world and why? Listen, if you can answer those questions in a way that makes total sense... To your non Christian neighbor, you're not a Christian. It's at least not a good sign. Friend, where do you find life? What rejuvenates you? Do you find it in all the fleeting pleasures and profits of the world, or do you find it in the eternal things of Christ in the world to come? Man does not live on bread alone. But on every word that comes from God's mouth, would anybody think that that sentence is true of you if they followed you around for a week in a row? Or would they think, yeah, that man, that woman really does live on bread alone? Death to self... Is the prerequisite to fruitfulness in Christian ministry, both for individuals and for churches. You want to be fruitful in other people's lives? Turn off the TV, shut off the computer, take your headphones out of your ears, and buy a good Christian book from the Christian bookstore or the church bookstore and read it with a friend here at church. That's a good place to start. Develop your appetite. I didn't start drinking coffee until I got married. And since I've gotten married, I haven't stopped drinking coffee. <laughs> it was an acquired taste. But once I acquired it, I have not unacquired it. This is how biblical learning, spiritual learning goes. You've got to develop an appetite for it. And you've got to encourage that appetite. We cannot be fruitful for the eternal lives of others, if we are not dying to ourselves, our sins, our pleasures, our habits, our profits, our savings, our appetites, our assumptions, Jesus is gently but firmly telling you to get over yourself and your sins and how you think about yourself outside Christ. If you want to lose weight, then you have to die to your appetites. You can't Listen to every time your stomach says, I'm hungry, let's go to the kitchen. You have to learn a different way of appreciating a different feeling in your stomach. That's hard to do. And it's hard to keep doing, isn't it? (laughs) That's why so many of us have a hard time keeping the weight off after we've taken it off. It's hard to do. It's hard to reorient yourself like that. You have to die. You can't keep thinking the same way. You can't go back to thinking the old way. If you want eternal life and if you want to be useful for the eternal life of others, you have to die to seeking life from the things of this life. Of course, if you don't even want to be useful for the eternal life of others to begin with, then you have far more fundamental problems to ask yourself about. You can't simply live like a culturally conservative non-Christian and then assume that you're a Christian. Conservatism isn't Christianity. To be a Christian means that you die to sin, to self, to the world. Paul says in Galatians five twenty four, "Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So, what about you, professing Christian, is dying? right now and what about you are you afraid to see die if you are frustrated that you are not more fruitful in the lives of other Christians maybe it's because you're not dead you've never died Because dying is the way to eternal glory. Fourth, this glory in Christ is also a divine glory. It's a divine glory in verses 27 to 29. When Jesus says his soul is troubled, he's quoting Psalm 6, verse 3. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? That's Psalm 6. The next verse in Psalm 6 is the psalmist asking God, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And that, as I had to have it pointed out to me by a theologian, that is exactly what Jesus cannot do for him in his own case. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? It's not appropriate. It was appropriate for the psalmist to say, Save me, deliver me. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. But that's not appropriate for Jesus. Jesus can quote from Psalm 6, My soul is greatly troubled. He cannot quote from Psalm 6, Deliver me from this hour. And He knows it. Because for this purpose, I have come to this hour. For what purpose? For death. This death Jesus' death as our substitute to atone for our souls by enduring God's wrath in our place for our sins. That and nothing less is the reason Jesus has come to this hour and took on human flesh in the first place. You cannot separate the incarnation from the crucifixion. The crucifixion is the purpose of the incarnation. Why take on a body so that it can be torn nailed to a cross so that he can have blood to bleed for us. And whose purpose is that? It's his father's purpose. And therefore, Jesus asks his father in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. So this divine glory is purposed by the father and it is also requested by the son Jesus knows that the Father wants to glorify Himself in the death of His Son, but how on earth does the death of the Son glorify the Father? the, The world criticizes Christianity for this, criticizes God for this. How can God be righteous and loving and yet condone the killing of His only Son? No thank you. That has been called by some poor theologians cosmic child abuse. but they're not asking the right question. The question is not how can God be righteous and loving and yet condone the killing of his own son. The better question is how can God be righteous and loving without killing his own son? What is unthinkable for us as parents is glorious in in God and necessary for our salvation and intuitive to Jesus as God's son. Jesus wants to glorify His Father in His own death on our behalf. The Father will be glorified in Jesus' death by Jesus' willing, obeying of the Father's purpose for Him in death. The Father will be glorified in the Son's obedience to death, even death on a cross, but that will not be the only way that the Father will be glorified in the Son's death. Look there in verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father has already glorified His own name, In the son's life and ministry, his miracles, his teaching, he will again glorify his own name in his son's death. And that death is what will glorify the father's righteousness in punishing our sin under God the father's wrath. That's how God is glorified. And it will glorify the father's mercy in accepting the son's death as the substitute payment that God will accept for the atonement of your sin so that you can be reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ and not by trying to outweigh your bad stuff with your good stuff. But of course, all this is lost on everyone but Jesus. They only hear thunder or assume an angel has spoken to them. The voice came for their benefit to alert them that God was answering Jesus' prayer, but they don't have ears to hear it. Yet this glory is no less divine for being lost on humanity. It's still glory, even though it goes unrecognized. It doesn't matter that people don't recognize it. It is still glorious. Friend, how many times have you thought, if I could just hear a voice from heaven, if I could just see Jesus, I would believe. The Bible doesn't buy that. That's not how the Bible presents unbelieving humanity to you. It's not how the Bible exegetes you for you. The Bible doesn't explain you to you like that. If I could just hear a voice from heaven, if I could just see Jesus. No, 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 no. Plenty of people heard voices from heaven and had no idea what to make of it. So what happened here. Lots of people saw Jesus, but in the words of Isaiah, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. They looked and they looked away. Didn't even make a double take. Even after seeing Lazarus raised, John will say that the overwhelming response to Jesus' earthly ministry was rejection. In verses 37 to 42, No wonder Abraham said from heaven to Devas in hell, In Luke 16, 30, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you don't believe in Jesus based on Scripture, Jesus doesn't think you will believe at all. Because Jesus and his proof is not your problem. He gave you plenty of signs, plenty of teaching, plenty of fulfilled prophecy. You have plenty to go on. The problem is not in Jesus' proofs. You, sinner, you are the problem. Your heart is the problem. You're stubborn, adamant, calloused unbelief, your commitment to your unbelief and the sins that your unbelief excuses that's your problem if the divine glory in Jesus is lost on you, it is not his fault because he asks you how could you have been so blind maybe you should ask yourself that. That's the first step. Fifth, this is a victorious glory. It's a victorious glory. Now is the judgment of this world, he says. How so? Well, in one sense, God is condemning the whole value structure of worldliness by honoring Jesus as the crucified Messiah to rise from the dead and rule all things. The shame of the cross rebukes and nullifies the whole system of human pride. Humility is the way to exaltation in Jesus' economy. Being lifted up on the shameful cross is the way Jesus would be lifted all the way up to heaven's glory. The shame of the cross is the triumph of God's glory over the world. But even more fundamentally, Jesus' death judges the world in the sense that His crucifixion is the height of human sinfulness and rejection of God. The world's condemnation of Christ is actually its condemnation of itself because in rejecting the Christ, the world rejects the only one in whom it could have found pardon. The world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus, D.A. Carson said. In reality, the cross was passing judgment on them. And for us today, dying to the world's approval is the only way to live in God's approval. The cross illustrates the glory of triumphing over the world by dying to its praise and priorities. The cross of Jesus is what it looks like to hate your life in this world in order to keep it to life eternal. That is why the world hates a real Christian. Because when you live like a real Christian, you die to the world. And when you die to the world, you expose and defeat the lie that worldliness and rebellion against God is the right way to live. You show by your own life that the world is wrong about God and about itself. You show that the world ultimately loses to the victory of God in Christ and the world hates being shown that its rebellion against God is wrong and futile. The world hates that. The world hates seeing itself rebuked and disproved in your godliness and in your rejection of worldliness. Be that as it may, Christ's cross is His victorious glory over the world and also over Satan as the ruler of this world, victorious over Satan. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus wins through his apparent defeat on the cross. Satan is not cast out of the world in the sense that he can no longer tempt or wreak havoc, but Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension have definitively knocked Satan off the throne of the world. Satan's most powerful weapon has been neutralized, death. And that's happened by Jesus enduring and then overcoming death in his resurrection, which defanged the serpent and drained his poison. Satan's tyranny of lies and death is over in Jesus' resurrection. Remember, Satan's great lie was, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open. you'll be just like God, knowing good and evil. That's what he told Adam and Eve. God's not good, God's bad. If God were really good, he'd let you have some of that fruit. If God were really good, he would let you determine right and wrong for yourself. The only reason he told you no is that he doesn't want you to be as great as he is. God won't make good on his threat, though. God is lying to you. It's not that you will die if you disobey him. It's that you will live even better than God wants you to live, and you'll be just like him. And he feels threatened by that. That's what Satan is saying. That is what one theologian called the mother of lies told by the father of lies. The cross of Christ, though, proves otherwise. It proves that God is not who Satan told us he was. God really is good. He really does love us. And the proof is that he sent his own son to suffer his own curse in our place to take our death as our substitute for our rebellion against him. The cross of Christ breaks, then, the deceptive power of Satan's lie about God by breaking Jesus' body for us. And that's how we have victory with Christ as his people. Jesus says, verse 32, If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. All men. This is what the appearance of the Greeks signaled to him. If I am crucified, lifted up on the cross, lifted up to heaven in resurrection and ascension, then I will draw all sorts of people from all sorts of places to my atoning sacrifice to free people from their sins and to reconcile them to God. He did this for us in love, to share his victory with us. And in fact, this is how Jesus sees himself fulfilling Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He will be exalted at the cross, in his death, and in his resurrection. That victorious glory was not going to happen by a bloodless coronation, but with a crown of thorns and three nails and a cross of wood. And because it did, Christ's trusting people share with him in his victory over the world, Satan, and even death itself. And this is why you are not a slave to your sins. Because of Jesus' death. John specifies, verse 33, that when Jesus spoke of being lifted up in verse 32, he's talking about the very way that he would die, suspended in midair, lifted up on a Roman cross. Here again, there's no Christ-taught Christianity without the atoning death of Jesus. That doesn't exist. Crossless Christianity is not Christianity. His lifting up by crucifixion was necessary to his lifting up by resurrection and ascension. His suffering was the prerequisite to his glory was even part and parcel of that glory because it embodied his voluntary obedience to the Father. There is, you see, glory in, even in the shame of the cross. It is glorious that Jesus was obedient enough to God his Father to die on the cross at his Father's command. That is glorious. That is praiseworthy. There's light and life in that. And that is why we sing, Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Six and finally, it's a departing glory. It was a departing glory. The word so in verse 34 indicates... The crowd knew Jesus was talking about being lifted up to die on a cross. That's why they asked their question as they do. They thought from Messianic promise texts like 2 Samuel 7 or Psalm 110 that the Christ is going to remain forever. So how can Jesus say He's going to be lifted up? What kind of Son of Man has Jesus been presenting Himself to be if He thinks He's headed for the cross? That's not how they understood Old, teaching, Old Testament teaching about the Messiah, or the Son of Man. The Son of Man comes to stay. So where does Jesus think He's going? Lifted up how? Lifted up to where? Verse 35, Jesus doesn't so much answer their question as urge them to see how imminent his departure actually is. This is close. The light, Jesus himself, is only among you for a little while longer. It's only a few days now. They're already in Passover week. By week's end, Jesus will be lifted up on the cross. And so it was urgent for them to believe before he departed. Do you realize what you have here? Do you realize how quickly this is going to end? My physical presence with you as the Messiah? And it is urgent for us as well to believe before he returns or calls us to account in death. Verses 35 to 36, he simply and genuinely invites their trust in him one last time. This is his last public conversation before his arrest and trial. And yet again, look at how patient and gracious Jesus is with those who are asking him questions with a tone of impatience, as if they know the Bible better than he does. But he still wants these crowds, fickle and superficial as they are, to trust in him before his glory departs from them. And from the way he leaves at the end of verse 36, you get the sense that they did not respond well. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Jesus hides when he thinks they're going to kill him before his hour has come. And he hides here after he knows that he has not answered their question as they have asked it to their satisfaction. And so Jesus' public ministry comes to a close and next week we will see how unsuccessful it looked because after doing so many signs before them they still did not believe. And so it is that Jesus radiates a different kind of glory that is lost on everyone around him. How tragic. It went unrecognized then, much as it does now. And yet Jesus' glory is no less global, no less eternal, no less divine, no less victorious, just because it goes unrecognized. The fault is not with his glory. The fault is with those who do not recognize it. Friend, if you're a non-Christian listening to this, consider yourself visited by God and his word. Why would you have heard such a message unless God himself were urging you to trust in Christ before it's too late? Open your eyes to Jesus' glory and ask yourself, how could I have been so blind? A Christian, I know it's frustrating and sad to live in a world that refuses to recognize the glory of the Christ you love. The world rejects you because it rejects Jesus. But do not be discouraged. That is just the world being the world. It is blindness doing double diligence and closing its eyes. It is deafness doing double diligence and tuning out the sound of the gospel. The world refused to recognize Jesus' glory even when they saw him face to face. So be encouraged by the words of an old dead Anglican. The world may cast out our name as evil and turn us out of its society, but when we dwell with Christ in glory, we shall have a home from which we can never be ejected. The world may pour contempt on our religion and laugh at us and laugh us and our Christianity to scorn. But when the Father honors us on the last day, before the assembly of angels and men, we shall find that his praise makes amends for all. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we confess that we have for a long time been blind to your glory and still as Christians we don't see even the half of it. And what a tragedy it is. It's not your fault. You are clear in your revelation. It's our fault. It's our sin that keeps us half blind. Well, Father, may we walk in the light. May we see it. Open our eyes more and more. Use us, weak as we are, sinful as we still are, to help open the eyes of others that they might see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For His glory we pray. Amen.